We welcome you to the media ministry of Denton Bible Church. Our speaker today is the senior pastor, Tom Nelson. Well, I'd like you to look at Proverbs 11 right here with me. In verse uh, 23 and following, this passage is talking about experiencing the direction and the will of God and the blessing of God, about living in the will of God. Now, in counseling, when people come by to you for counsel, quite often the question of how do you know the will of God is the big question. When I was at a uh, Campus Crusade for Christ uh, Christmas conference in 1973, the biggest breakout sessions were creation and Darwinism, and then how do you know the will of God? Because when you say the will of God, you're not talking about the moral revealed will of God, where the Bible tells you this is true and this is false, this is right and this is wrong. That's not a real problem. You can read it and there it is. It's not talking about right or wrong. It's the will of God that talks about right or left. Are you with me? In other words, not whether I should leave my wife or not. That's a biblical moral thing. It's there in the Bible. But should I go to work for TI or Texas Instruments? Should I go to school at SMU or Rice? Because you're not going to find it in the Bible. We're not told to find revelatory knowledge on right or wrong things. That's why, if you ever notice, fortune tellers, tarot card readers, tea leave readers, uh, astrology and all that stuff is not about the issue of right and wrong. It's about right and left. It's to show me not my duty, but my fortune. And that's why everybody has down to Lake Dallas, down at Shorelines Community, to try to find some tea leaf reader <laughs> to tell her whether to go to SMU or Rice. And the Bible doesn't hold you accountable for that. Uh, the, the thing the Bible presses on is knowing the revealed will of the morality and the holiness of God. The things of, that are right and left decisions, God says, make the decision you want with wise counsel, and I'll guide you. But what gets people in trouble is not going to SMU or Rice or TI or, or Peterbilt. That's not what gets them in problem. What gets them in problem is a defection from the holiness of God. That's what causes them trouble. And so the Bible is going to talk about here about how to live and enjoy the guidance and the direction of God. The name God is not mentioned in the text, but the life that he calls you to is. Best counsel I ever had when I was a young Christian was a guy named John McCain. He said, don't worry about the will of God for your life. Worry about the will of God. Don't worry about T.I. or Peterbilt. Don't worry. Do what you want. Don't worry about SMU or Rice. You can ask some questions. Do you like mosquitoes? Okay. <laughs> then go to Houston. All right. So you got gas to drive down there all the time. You got a place to live in North Dallas. Uh, okay. So you don't have to worry about that. What you have to be concerned about. Am I in the word, reading the word, obeying the word, heralding the word, and living a life that is pleasing to God, whereby he can guide me? So don't worry about the will of God for your life. Be concerned about the will of God, okay? Well, 
With that in mind, just watch this in verse 23. Two men are examined in this paragraph, a good one and a bad one. They make two choices with two value systems. They take two paths that ends up in two destinations. And it's not over that they are not mystic and don't know the will of God. It's that they are not obedient to follow what is in pen and ink right in front of them. In verse 23, the desire of the righteous is only good. This man's ambitions are good, his desire. He doesn't just want money or power or pleasure or crime or fame or peer, peer approval. Rather, he wants to know, to follow, to live, to herald, to bless. He wants to be a blessing, like God said to Abraham. And that fellow in verse 23, his desire is good. But the expectation of the wicked is not God's direction and blessing. What the wicked can expect in verse 23, what's the last word? Wrath, the displeasure of God. His ambitions are worldly. He can expect only God's opposition, God's absence, and God's and disappointment. Disappointment means the point you wanted to get to is dissipated. You never make it. The best laid plans of mice and men, when they are not righteous, they will end up in disintegration and disappointment. And so the Bible says, man plans his way. The Lord directs his step. What are your ambitions? That once those are solid, you can expect and wait upon the will of God. I have never had a real problem in my Christian life with the direction of God because I don't worry about it. I know that God has a plan for me and God is willing to lead me. My concern is that I am blessable. You dig? That I'm, if God blesses my life, I'm not causing him to be his own devil, to put his blessing on a lie, but to put his blessing on something that he's pleased with. This was whenever the Israelites would head out every morning in the book of Numbers. Moses said, Aaron, I want you to pray this prayer. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his, and here's why God will bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you. All right. Do you ever have a kid that's pleasing? Think for just a second. Whenever you got a pleasing kid and you go, oh, send the pictures to grandma. Look at that. That's what it means. May, he, may uh, his face be lifted up. It means I'm so pleased with you. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Good job. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you. The Lord lift up the light of his countenance upon you and give you peace. And so every morning we're going to start out and get our act together. And so Cain, Haman, Pharaoh, Absalom, Adonijah, Samson, Saul, Eli, Judas, Simon the magician, Ahithophel, Joab, Balaam. They were all bad guys that planned great things that ended up dead and defeated. And so 
The noble man, Isaiah, makes noble plans, and by those plans standeth he. God will put his blessing. The Bible says of the wicked, they are set in slippery places, and their foot will slip in due time. Nothing is worse than living a life that you know God is not pleased with, and you're always waiting for the shoe to drop on you. Uh, David saw a girl across the, across the courtyard bathing. David, you got about six wives, all right? Don't be looking. Hey, somebody tell me what her name is. The guy comes back. It's Bathsheba, the wife of your best friend, Uriah. Oh, really? Yeah. Hmm. Go see if she wants to come over and have a meal. Shouldn't do that. Here she comes. He sleeps with her. He walked away. I'm okay. Here comes a phone call. I'm pregnant. Now what do you do? Now he tries to hide it. And so I'm going to get Uriah to come in and sleep with you. The kid will come a little early, have red hair, but nobody will ask. Uriah wouldn't do it. I'm not going to lay with my wife while all the soldiers are out there in the rain. Well, how about this? I'll get him drunk. Then he'll do it. He still wouldn't do it. So he said, well, there's only one thing to do. So he writes out Joab, put him in the front line, take it to him. Who carried the death note to Joab? Uriah. David knew that faithful man will not look at that note. So he used it against him and he died. David said, well, I lost the set, but I won the match. I'm doing okay. But then it says, and incidentally, in all of that narrative in 2 Samuel, guess what name is not mentioned? God. He's not there. And then it says at the end of the chapter, but what David did was not pleasing in the eyes of God. I saw it. And so it looks like he got away with it until Nathan showed up. You're the man. And what you did in private is going to be done to you in public by your own kids. He lost three kids to immorality. And so nothing is worse than living a public life that you know privately is corrupted and that God knows and you can't expect him to bless. That is the ninth level of Dante's hell when you're there. And so David said during that time, your hand was heavy against me. The Hebrew says you beat the pajabers out of me. God just worked him all during that time. And so Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he'll make your path straight. You do the right thing and God will take care of future things. That's all you got to do. John 14, 21, he that loves, keeps my commandments, he it is that loves me. And he that loves me 
will be loved by my Father. It's a verb, an active verb. Any of y'all have kids? Don't stand and call out here, but any of y'all have kids that you love, but you can't exercise your love towards them because they're in rebellion. And all of your wisdom, all of your wealth, all of your everything, you can't give to them because they're living in defiance. He that keeps my word will be loved by my Father, and I will love him, and I'll disclose myself to him. This child's going to learn who I am. That's the way you learn who God is, is by obeying him, and you experience the blessing of God. The book of Jude, keep yourself in the love of God. The prodigal son, question, did the father love him? Yes. Did the son for a period not experience the love of the father? He did not until he went home and the father said, put the ring on his finger, the robe on his back, put the sandals on his feet, kill the fatted calf. This son of mine was lost and now he's been found. So that's when you experience God's love. There is no colder place than to know God is not pleased with you. And so the author says, don't you do it. Let's read it again. Righteous men's desires is good, but the wicked can expect wrath. God will not put his blessing on error and evil, and in so doing, be his own devil. He won't do it. And so in verse 24, the way of obedience, are y'all with me so far? That was a very frightening text, okay. But in verse 24, the way of obedience may not seem rational. Our thought is, is the way you get ahead is to hoard and cheat and be underhanded. We had a guy at Dallas Seminary that said his father told him, make money. Make it honestly if you can. Make it dishonestly if you must. But you make money. And that's how he was raised. This text says that the way of obedience may not seem to be self-serving, but it is. Uh, verse 24, there's one who scatters. That means that you take your grain and you give it away. But he increases all the more. The Bible says, he that sows much, reaps much. Whenever you have grain, what you want to do is grind it up into flour and then eat it. But if you sow it, you're taking a chance. It's counterproductive. That grain you can make into flour, you're going to throw it into the earth and it's going to rot and the shell's going to break down and then water's going to come in and it's going to germinate and bring life. But it's not just going to come back as a grain of wheat. It's going to come back as a stalk of wheat, 30, 60, 100 fold. But the way you have to do is by faith. You don't understand soil, germination, osmosis, hydrolysis, photosynthesis, the sun's rays, chlorophyll. You don't understand them. Turn to your neighbor and spell chlorophyll, okay? You, you can't. 
and yet it works. And so when you sow, you're trusting in something that is bigger than you. And it seems self-crucifying when you throw it out there. You've lost it. Give it time. Because whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. And lo and behold, he gets rich. And so whenever a person, Jesus put it like this, a grain of wheat, unless it falls to the earth and dies, it bears no fruit. If it dies, it bears much fruit. Give and it shall be given. Pressed down, shaken together, running over. He that loses his life shall find it. So it's kind of like the old deal of how you catch a monkey in Africa. You make a box, you put a candy down in it. He sticks his hand in it and grabs it, but he can't get his fist out. Well, monkey, if you're not going to get, if you want to become brisket monkey, okay, you need to drop what your flesh wants. The monkey won't do it. He'll hang on. If you're going to get free, you better drop it. No. And that's the way Satan catches humans. You got to get rid of that. No, I want it now. Now, 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 now. And he's got you. And so you have to be willing to say, it's not my will, it's your will. It's not my life, it's your life. It's not my glory, it's your glory. And it's not my cause, it's your cause. Present your bodies a living, holy sacrifice that you may prove what the will of God is, what is good and perfect and holy. And so the unjust in verse 24, he's too cool for school. He's going to withhold He's not going to help anybody. He hold, withholds what is justly due. He stiffs his, op his obligations. He doesn't pay his bills. And as a result, he increases by cheating and lying and swindling and crime. And what is the uh, last word there in uh, 24? It results only in what's your word? want. It backfires on him. He that seeks to save his life will lose it. Adam and Eve, you're in the garden. You got some great potential. Here's the rules. Don't you go off on your own and eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil where you're going to know life, good and evil, and success without God. Don't you do that. You trust me and you fellowship with me at this tree. Satan says, obedience is going to constrict what you could be. If you're going to be something in life, you better get rid of the baggage of God. And here we are, lost, found by Christ. And so, uh, same way here. If you're going to be a blessing, or be blessed, be a blessing. It's what God told Abraham. Be a blessing. Give of yourself. Here, listen to this text. When Paul was in jail, a guy named Epaphroditus brought him money from Philippi, missionary support. And Paul said in Philippians 4, I have received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. He said, God was pleased with your gift. And then Paul said, and my God shall supply your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. You took care of my need. God is going to not have you outgive him. 
God is going to bless you. And so if you would like to know the blessing of God, die. Die. It's your will. It's your glory. It's your cause and your purpose. It's your power. I'm going to give my life to you. Don't be the best you can be. Be the best that God can make you. And you're going to have to have to, little seed, die. That a process can take over that you have no idea what it is. And you live on that edge. In verse 25, the generous man will be prosperous. He that waters himself, or he that waters will himself be watered. You know, David was anointed by Samuel to be king. But Samuel didn't tell him how it was going to work. You are now the king. Yay, hot dang. What do I do now? Just hang in there. Just wait. How do you get to be king? That's God's ultimate plan for you. I'm going to make you king. David went back to the sheep. A little bit later, Saul, David doesn't know it, but Saul is in rebellion against God. And God sends a demon on him to torment him. And someone says in the court, is there somebody somewhere that can play music other than top 40? All right, to where we can have the songs of God played to drive this demon away. And somebody pipes in and says, Saul said to his servants, provide for me now a man who can play well and bring him to me. Then one of the young men said, behold, I have seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite who's a skillful musician a mighty man of valor, a warrior, one prudent in speech. He's a godly young man and a handsome man. What can I say? And the Lord is with him. I've just happened to see a guy, and this is what I saw. And so Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, send your son David, who is with the flock, and here comes David becomes a musician, becomes an armor bearer, kills Goliath, becomes a five-star general, and gets in line for the throne. God never told him how he would do it. He just said, this is my ultimate plan. Now you just walk in the power of the Spirit, and you see a young man obeying God, worshiping and currying favor in the nation, and God blessed him. And so, uh, verse Read it again, verse 25. The generous man will be prosperous, and he who waters will himself be watered. That's the way God is. God created the angelic realm because he had a purpose. They were to be the messengers of God. For who? Then he would create the universe with light and all of these physical attributes, God doesn't need those things. Who was the universe created for? Us. Why did he put a moon at night? So you could go to the bathroom. <laughs> Who's joking? So you can get around at night. And stars. Uh, he made a body that can assimilate food. 
Who needs food? Not God. We do. The animal realm, you name it. And so God did all of this for us. Now that's a giving God. At the end of each of the days of creation, or most all of them, it says God saw it and it was good. Not because God needed it, but it's good for us. God didn't partake any of the creation. It's all for you. Now that's God. Then he's got a son that when man rebels, he will go from heaven to earth to a womb to a cross and die for what we did. That's the son. And that's alien to us. That can't get into us. The death of Christ is no use to us because we're not going to believe it. Here comes a person to open our eyes, affect our wills, to receive him as Savior, to be engrafted into the family of God, that he will sanctify us and someday raise us from the dead. The first was the Father, and the next was the Son. Who's the third one? The Holy Spirit. That's the Trinity. That they are the most marvelous personalities within the one God that you can ever imagine. That's the way God is. And that was the way Adam was expected to be, to be a blessing. Well, whenever I see people that are constantly learning, living, and giving, in time, they're going to be like trees firmly planted by streams of water that yield their fruit and their season. Their leaf does not wither, and whatever they do, they prosper. Just give them time. Okay. Did y'all learn this in school? No. School is self-exaltation. Not should be, but a lot of times it is. School can help you try to make a living. It can't help you make a life. That's why so often in the, this proverb, he'll call the reader, my son, my son. This is what you get taught when you're young. If you keep watching here in verse 26, here's the bad guy. He withholds grain and the people will curse him. He raises the gas prices. It's called the price gouger. Have y'all ever heard this term, the non-compassionate use of accumulated wealth? Back in the mid-1800s, we went from rural to urban, the farm to the factory, and now you didn't need a hundred weavers to make stuff. You needed about 10 machines and someone that was non-talented to go and punch them and clean them out every couple of hours. And we put artisans out of work. It was called the Industrial Revolution. And it happened from one end of Europe all the way into the States. And it caused tremendous problems of a certain group of investors that got fantastically wealthy, and then the rest of the country that you could now say, I'll pay you 50 cents a day. And here comes an, a uh, German immigrant says, I'll do it for 40 cents a day. You're hired. You, get out. Here comes a Jewish guy, says, I can do it for a quarter a day. Can you? Okay, you do it. You other guys get out. I'm expecting a baby. You're fired. You're out. Uh, my child can do it for seven cents a day. 
then he'll do it. It was called the non-compassionate use of accumulated wealth. And out of that came the need of the common man rose up and began to curse them. And you had what were called collective bargaining. You had unions. And they fought against it. You ever seen the movie, How Green Is My Valley? About the rising of unions in the coal mines. And then you have a strike. And they bring on strike breakers. And you have riots. And you have killings. And then pretty soon... In, the, in Europe, by 1848, all European monarchies were gone. Did y'all know that? They were all gone by 1848 because the crowds of working men rose up and they began to burn the factories. And then in France, they took the wealthy and they cut their heads off. And a guy named Lenin I'm sorry, Karl Marx, that Lenin began to propagate, said, workers of the world, unite. You have nothing to lose but your chains. And you saw the beginnings of revolution. And, and in Germany, they would have 70,000 workers that were out of bread walking the streets of Berlin, saying in a low stentorian chant, no bread, lead. No bread, lead, no bread, lead. Now, if you're the wealthy, what are you going to do? It was the total overthrow of the countries. And then they tried. It's easier to have a revolution than a constitution. Then they tried to put the thing back together. And you ended up with the parliaments and all that stuff. But basically, it came because of the non-compassionate use of accumulated wealth. There was a group of guys in England that rebelled against it because the way that you would, one of the greatest ways of trade to keep costs down was called slave trade. And William Wilberforce, a Christian, said that's not right and stood against it. Uh, we had what was called a civil war out of the non-compassionate use of wealth. And that's what the Bible's talking right here. A guy that will put himself ahead of others, everybody's going to curse him. I, I looked at a at the news the other day, and there was an Indian couple in the Metroplex that when the gas went to $5, they refused to go to $5. They kept it down to $4.99. And they made the news, and people were driving from all over to come buy their gas just because they thought so highly of them. Isn't that interesting? Who's the guy in the Bible that knows there's going to be a famine that says you better take 20% of your grain and save it so that it's gone, you're going to be able to make it. And everybody loved him. What's his name? Joseph. There's a guy who came later that saw a famine came, and he said, you can take my body and kill it, and you can have life, Jesus. We love those guys. And so, verse 26, the leech that withholds grain, we're going to burn him down. In verse 26, but blessing will be on the head of the little Indian couple, of Joseph, of Jesus, of the great prophet George Bailey. What movie am I talking about? It's a wonderful life. George saved Harry Bailey's life, even if it cost him his hearing in one ear. 
George saved the building and loan, even if it cost him the money for his honeymoon. George saved Bedford Falls from the depression. George let Harry go to school, though he didn't get to, and he got stuck with a building and loan. George saved the career of Mr. Gower. Remember that? He accidentally poisoned the kid. George said, I didn't do it, got slapped by Mr. Gower. He said, I'll never tell anybody, Mr. Gower. George saved Violet Biggs from a life of destitution. George saved Clarence. Clarence the angel knew, I can keep George from killing himself if I'll jump in the water because I can predict what that man will do. He'll jump in to save me. And he did it. Mr. Potter looked at him and said, well, George, you're worth more dead than alive. And uh, he got shown different. And at the end of the movie, in comes Harry and all the town celebrating George. And Harry says to my big brother, George, the richest man in town. And it's very symbolic that they sang a song, Old Lang Syne, that means in Scottish, old long since, you never lose the good memories of good men. Should old acquaintance, yeah. It's a wonderful life. George, you had a wonderful life. You gave of yourself. Why do we play that movie at Christmas? Because it's the most Christ-emulating thing other than Bob Cratchit is George Bailey. Isn't that amazing? You know, Frank Capra that wrote that, he said the greatest criticism he ever got in his movies was the end of It's a Wonderful Life where everybody's celebrating, but you, you're waiting for somebody to say, hey, Potter had the money. And then everybody goes over and burns his house, you know. <laughs> and so Frank Capra said that was the biggest gripe about the movie. Everybody wanted to see Potter dead, you know, see a wheelchair go out of the third story. <laughs> well, in verse 27, are y'all with me so far? This is like a blinding flash of the obvious. When you're reading this, you're nodding, going, yeah, of course. Verse 27, you diligently seek good, you seek favor. It's talking about men. Then not only can, are you have favor with God, but favor with men. Who's the guy in the Bible that says he grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men, Samuel and Jesus? It means everybody likes you. Not only does God put his hand on you, but the adults look at you as a kid and go, man, that kid's heading for something. Would you like to marry my grandson? He's gonna do so well. I told you a story a couple of weeks ago about a guy in our church that's at the top of his profession in communications, top guy. And I said, did you plan on that in college? He said, no. I said, how'd you get there? He went to school at a particular mechanical and engineering college down by Marlin, all right? And the guys came in from this communications industry and just ran into him. They said, hey, kid, we're here to do this. Uh, we're going to watch a ball game. Could you get us some hot dogs? Here, take a few bills. Well, he takes off to get them some hot dogs. And he doesn't just get hot dogs. I mean, he gets them a bunch of hot dogs, relish, mustard, um, ketchup, all the drinks they would need, 
chili, cheese. He's got it. And he lays it down. All they wanted was hot dogs. And this guy looks at him and goes, son, what's your name? And he told him and he went to the top. Grade point average, hot dogs. <laughs> you males of the species, when you get to a point in your career that you're doing real well, and you're thinking about when you're gonna have to leave it all behind, what do you start looking for? A young stud that you can, that you can turn it over to. And uh, see a man skilled in his work, he'll not stand before obscure men, he'll stand before kings. Everybody's looking for a great kid. There are never too many to flood the market. And so favor is coming. But in verse 27, but he that seeks evil, evil will come. You want to get proof of this? How many of you have attended your 50th reunion? When you go to your 50th reunion, just look for the hellraisers. Look for the druggies, look for the drinkers, look for the immoral. If they didn't turn it around, they're going to look like the classic written hard and put up wet. They're going to look bad. They really are. And all the little guys that towed the line and walked, you're going to see them safe and sound. And so he says, it's going to return on you. Jesus just put it like this. You don't get grapes from thorn bushes. In verse 28, he that trusts in his riches, the last chapter isn't in, he will fall. Let me show you something interesting. See, we're, getting, we're going from what's called a general to a specific. We've been talking about the reciprocity of life, good and evil. And now we're getting down to very specific things. We're getting down to your finances. And then in verse 29, look at verse 29. What are we going to look at then? Your home. So it's, going, it's about to get real ugly. Solomon would say we're going from preaching to meddling. So if your life is nothing but wealth, you're going to fall. Listen to this. Flip over to Luke chapter 12, just real quick. And the stories of Jesus... And he told a corker here in chapter 12, in verse 16, 15, 12, 15, beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. Meaning when you see in you the longing to build your life on the accumulation of wealth, period, you're out to make money. You be careful because in verse 15, not even when one has an abundance of life or abundance does his life consist of possessions. The reason you need to beware of capitalism, runaway capitalism, where you make wealth simply for, uh, you know, your bodily pleasures and for no ultimate purpose 
He said, the problem is, is you might succeed. And not even when you have an abundance, do you have an abundance of life? You think you do, but you don't. And then when Jesus says in verse 16, once upon a time, whenever Jesus says once upon a time, you need to run. Because he's about to apply this story to your life. Once upon a time, there was a rich man who was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself. He goes inside of himself, not the Bible. What shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? I am so successful, I can't find barns big enough. Now, what should you do? If you have an excess, you should look around to those that have none. Verse 18, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns. I'll be progressive and I'll build larger ones and I'll store all my grain and my goods. And then after I've done that, because I'm confident that I'll succeed in that, James, come now you who are rich, who say today and tomorrow will go up to such, such city, spend a year, engage in business and profit. You don't know what your life will be like tomorrow. Instead, you should say, if God wills, we'll go up and do this or that. You don't know if you're going to live tomorrow. But this guy, he's got it under control. I'll store my grain and my goods. Does wealth give you the ability to predict absolutely what the future is? No. In verse 20 or 19, and then I'll say to my soul, he's, he's in charge of his life. Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Does wealth give you that freedom? Many goods, many years. Really? If you're rich, you get to determine when you'll die. Right? Wrong. Many goods, many years. Is that right? Wealth just billows this guy's head into error. And then in verse 19, come your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. Wealth equals the ability to predict. Wealth equals many years. And wealth equals merriment. Is that right? If I have a bunch of dough, I'm going to be happy. Are you really Verse 19 or 20, what's the first three words? But God said, God said, excuse me, would anyone like to ask me? But God said, fool, that's a tip off for your plans didn't work. <laughs> hey, fool, how many guys in the Bible does God call fool? One, this is him. Fool, that you thought you could play God because you got a big barn full of wheat. That's what you thought. In verse 20, he said, many years, God said, this very night, your soul is required of you. So does Money give you the right to predict your future and to say many years? No, you don't. And then he says in verse 20, now who will own what you have, have prepared? The King James says, whose then shall these things be? How much are you going to take with you? Nothing. 
The only thing you can take with you is what Christ took. Today you'll be with me in paradise. You can take a soul. He said, who will own what you've prepared? We're going to take all your stuff and put it on the curb. And we're going to give it away. Then we're going to give away, sell the other stuff in a estate sale. And your kids are going to take your house. And they're going to rent it to freshman music majors. Okay. And we're going to forget you ever lived. And so Jesus says in 21, so is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Self, God. What's your call? Self, God. Man is not made for self. Nothing is smaller than a human wrapped up in himself. The wretch concentered all in self dies unwept, unhonored, and unsung. And so go back here to Proverbs chapter 11. But the righteous is going to flourish like the green leaf because he's got something higher. He's got righteousness. Do y'all have one of them telephones, one of them uh, smartphones that has an uh, app on it? that you can type in an address somewhere and some Sputnik will show you. What do you call that thing? What is it, Debbie? A GPS, really. That's amazing. If you got your phone, plug in there, Waco, Texas, 3116 W-E-N-Z wins. That's where I grew up. It's now a national monument. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> Six of us, four boys and a father and a mama. We lived in 900 square feet. Only one room was closed off right in the middle of the house. It was the bathroom, the echo chamber. Okay. And uh, you know what? We played baseball and football and basketball. There were six fields around us that we would go play in. We had no air conditioning. We had, remember them swamp coolers? Come, 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 come. Wait, is this making you cry, Debbie? Taking you back to Louisville? Where you'd lay in front of it. We had Channel 10, Channel 6. All right, you couldn't get channel eight unless the youngest one took those antenna and just stood there, all right. Uh, we ate out one time. We went to Piccadilly. And the reason we were is because we had roaches. And so to get rid of roaches, you'd set off a roach bomb. Any of you remember a roach bomb? that would kill everything for like 600 yards. And so you would come home and there's dead things everywhere. It was tremendous, all right. But you couldn't eat anything. So we would all go to Piccadilly and uh, we'd eat. And that, when I go back today, that's my Br'er Rabbit's bar Briar Patch. That's my home. 
and I have nothing. I was privileged to have parents that loved each other. You didn't cuss, didn't drink. You, there was things, there were rules. There was beatings. Oh, baby. <laughs> there was beatings, all right. Uh, to this day, the sound of a belt coming off. <laughs> It's just PTSD, all of my brothers were so like, oh. But you know what? Man, it shaped anything I ever became or did came out of that home. Better is a plate of vegetables in a house of peace than a fattened ox in a house of strife. And so this guy, you want to be Ebenezer Scrooge? You want to be Bob Cratchit? Which would you like to be? Give me Bob Cratchit not Ebenezer. And so you, and then in verse 29, it gets down deeper. You trouble your own house where you not only wither in your occupation and your life, but you bring it into your home and you trouble. You become the guy that the kids don't want to live up to. They want to live him down and try to put some space between them and his memory. There's some of you here that when you left your house, God love you, you had to begin a new branch on the family tree and you tried to forget where you came out of. I didn't have that. Uh, I just wanted to be as good as my father, mother, and my grandfather. We were blessed. And so the guy that brings this stuff into his house he inherits the wind. Your children are no longer your great glorious heritage. You lost them. They're gone. Sin came back and consumed you, swallowed you like a python whole. In verse 29, the foolish is going to hit the bottom and he will be servant to the wise hearted. Well, I've got a friend that I've spoken on her program a couple of few times, and she wrote a book about her life, so I'm not speaking out of turn here. You can read it. You ever heard of June Hunt? Her father was the richest man in the world, H.L. Hunt. He didn't have to have rules. He had his own rules, and so he had three families at one time. One is hard enough. But he had two at one time, wife died, then he had another one. And he would spin these plates. He was the ultimate control guy. And June told me that she came to faith. I mean, she said, when you came to dinner at six o'clock, you sat down and no one spoke. You did not speak. You sat down at six, not 6.01, but six. You didn't speak. They ate. And if he wanted you to speak, he would point to you. If he wanted her to sing, she would sing. And they were under that abuse, uh, that control. He was, he was scared about communism. And so he studied into it and found out that Baptists were more rabid against communism than other people. And so he said, we're going to be Baptists and we're going to go to the biggest. We're going to go to First Baptist Dallas. And his daughter, June, got involved in Bible study, but she started growing so about God that he took her out because God was taking a place in her life that he didn't have. We took her out. And so it got so bad that June, his, here was her testimony. She said, I planned to kill him. 
because I found out that if you killed your father at 17, you wouldn't go to prison, you'd go to juvie and then get out. So she said, I was under 18, so I thought I better kill him quick. So she went to her mother and told her mother, I'm gonna kill him. And the mother said, no, it'll upset the family. So she didn't. But June said something to me, and as she was talking, she would, June would be like my older sister, okay? We have a lot of the same memories, but I just looked at her. And uh, she said, all of us kids had our personalities and our future shaped by how you would successfully coexist with this person. That he was the greatest monolith of your life. How will you coexist? One brother just became a drug addict. Uh, others just went off in rebellion on their own. Some knuckled under and worked with the family business. She said, I found God. But uh, she's still single. And she just said, one man was enough. One man was enough. And yet this was a guy that was so rich, he tried to, you remember when he tried to corner the silver market? And a judge said to him, you're a billionaire. Why did you want to do this? He said, well, a billion isn't what it used to be. I've thought the same thing, you know. But June said he inherited the wind. He inherited the wind. And so, you know, when I, if you, you got, you know, is COVID still going on? Because you got nowhere to go. You know, there's a disease going to kill you. So I'm going to, I'll hold you a little longer. Buddy. When I became a Christian, I got a job at Ideal Aluminum in Waco, Texas, making heads and then a window winder to keep your window from staying up when you wanted it up and then pulling it down. That was me. And I learned to share the gospel where I was. And then I started doing my job around my little place as good as I could do it. And they would bring guys that were going to invest in the aluminum factory, Ideal Aluminum, back to look at my place because it was so clean. I had my stuff stacked perfect. I had a career as a window winder if I don't want to do it. And then I went to back to North Texas as a Christian and I tore up my knee Decided to graduate, and I worked at Kino's Convenience Store. Anybody remember Kino's here in town? I worked at Kino's. And I did the job as best as I could do it to the glory of God. I would front the stuff out on the shelves continually, dust them, even the black draught laxative. <laughs> Does anybody remember black draught? Black draught helps you feel fresh and clean inside. Porter Wagner, it was a, I dropped some once and it broke and it made a stain that's still there. <laughs> really, that's been 45 years. But I worked so well that I was offered one of the stores by Bill Keenis. I had a career in convenience stores, just waiting on me. I decided to go back because Hayden Fry was gonna come and coach in North Texas. So I decided to go back uh, they said, You're, we're going to lose, and we can't lose with a fifth-year senior. You're going to have to graduate. So they let me go. And at Louisville High School, started student teaching. I was the best student teacher I could be. They asked me to speak to the football team. Then I spoke to the school. And 
I'll be darned if I said, can you get paid for doing this? They said, yeah. So here I am. Okay. I had, was going to be an evangelist and a guy was going to train me. And uh, I just said, I'm going to serve God. God, I'm going to speak for you. That was where he was leading me. I'm going to speak. And I didn't know where I was going to get money from. I went out with a guy that was going to train me to raise money for him. And I went to Hank Dickerson, a realtor in Dallas. He had a guy behind the desk named James Hetherington. And I was beating the drum for this guy. He was Campus Crusade's first great evangelist. And he was training me. You need to give to this guy for the job he's doing. The guy looked at me and he said, Tom, what are you going to do? I said, I'm just going to let John train me and I'm just going to preach the Bible where I can. He said, I'm going to give you $300. And he did. $300 in 1973 would go a long way. I bought me a blue suit with a checkered vest and another pair of checkered pants with cuffs and a pair of heels that high. And I look good. All right. Got my blow dryer. <laughs> and so I, God took care of me. I spoke at a Methodist church. They said, boy, that was something. I just shared my testimony. Could you be the college director at our church? I could. I said, can you pay me anything? $400 a month and a duplex. And so Teresa and I got married. God took care of me there. And then the liberals came and I had to leave. And I ran into a guy named Mel Summerall. He said, can you come work with me? You got anything you can give me? $400 a month? All right. And my wife had just gotten part of her father's oil money, got spread out among her kids. She was making $900 a month. God just took care. He just like kite me along. I, he would just do like this. And uh, we got to praying and we didn't know how we were going to get land. We had no land to put. This land came open for $43,000. A guy came out of the blue, said, I'll give you $25,000. And I will give you interest-free another $10,000 if you guys can raise eighteen. dollars That would have been the money that we needed. For us to raise $18,000 uh, was a billion dollars. But we raised it. Why, we robbed convenience stores. <laughs> yeah. We got that money together. And we built, we built, where's the summer all, sir? We built that and we got the money for that. And just God just took care of us. And so I've been doing this since 1972. And I hadn't planned a thing yet. But God takes care of his own. Amen. So don't worry about God's will for your life. Are you faithful right now where God can lift up the light of his countenance upon you? Father in heaven, thank you for this time to be in your word and to hear things that all of us wish we had heard when we were little boys and girls. We pray that you would um, enlighten your word to us, strengthen us as we seek to obey Encourage us when our lives sometimes seem to be self-defeating as we die to ourselves. And then bless us as we go. In Jesus' name, amen.